notes for every episode Tracy and I have worked on. So we do encourage you to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on Britain's child migrant program in which the British Empire sent children to live in Canada and Australia and Rhodesia and other parts of the empire. And the focus on that episode was really on Australia. A lot of the children who were sent to Australia wound up living in just horrifying conditions. And the governments of Great Britain and Australia later formally apologized for that whole thing. In that episode, we mentioned Rhodesia really almost in passing. It was almost like an aside Uh, I knew very little about Rhodesia and its history, and most of my research on that previous episode was really on Canada and Australia, so we really did not give Rhodesia a lot of attention, aside from that very brief passing mention. The day after we recorded, though, a gunman killed nine people at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A suspect was later named as Dylan Roth, and he confessed to the shooting, and pictures of him wearing a jacket with a Rhodesian flag on it, eventually went viral. So suddenly our passing mention of Rhodesia seemed really woefully inadequate, but at that point we could not really redo that episode. So today we are going to remedy that with some context on Rhodesia and why the Rhodesian flag is associated with white supremacy today. Today, the territory that was once known as Rhodesia is two different nations, Zambia to the north and Zimbabwe to the south. Our primary focus in this episode is really the southern part of the territory, but to set the stage, we're going to talk a bit about how both of them came to be. So for centuries, this part of Africa has been home to a number of Bantu-speaking peoples. One of these peoples, who were the ancestors of the Shona people, created an immense city known as Great Zimbabwe, which according to legend is also the home of the Queen of Sheba. It's estimated that more than 10,000 people lived in Great Zimbabwe at its peak. The city was so massive and so complex that European colonists arriving in the area in the 1800s actually credited its creation to foreign visitors like Egyptians or Phoenicians uh, rather than having it be the work of Africans, which is what it actually was. Today, Great Zimbabwe is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In the mid to late 1800s, those European explorers and colonists generally came into the region from the south. One of them was Cecil Rhodes, who had been sent to South Africa in 1870 to work on his brother Herbert's cotton farm, rather than going to university. So, I'm going to talk very briefly about his time prior to... Uh, When Cecil Rhodes arrived in South Africa, his brother had actually already abandoned this farm in favor of a much more lucrative pursuit, which was diamond mining. Cecil convinced Herbert to come back to the farm, and they did try to make it go for a year or so. But in 1871, the two of them both moved to Kimberley, once again in pursuit of diamonds. And although Cecil Rhodes' health had not been especially good for much of his life, 
he was super ambitious. And in 1881, he finished a degree, and he later co-founded De Beers Consolidated Mines with C.D. Rudd. With the help of their friend Albert Biet, De Beers established a monopoly that eventually controlled 90% of the world's production of diamonds. Yeah, when, when we say ambitious here, he had aspirations like expanding the British Empire as far as possible, including reclaiming the United States, which at this point had been independent from Britain for a while. So he had very high aspirations in terms of the British Empire, especially. So the De Beers diamond cartel and the diamond trade could be a whole other podcast. And in fact, it has been both on this show and on our prior podcast called Pop Stuff. But long story short, Cecil Rhodes did not really just get behind the idea of making a bunch of money and then hoarding it. He wanted to put that wealth into action. And so he made his way into politics in 1881, hoping to really transform this diamond wealth into political power, both in the context of the British Empire, as I just mentioned, and then also the politics of uh, Africa and other imperial powers within Africa. After a while, and including a number of other events that we're not going to get into because it's outside the scope of this episode, he wanted to get into gold mining in what is now Zimbabwe. To do that, he needed to secure rights from King Lobengula, uh, ruler of the Ndebele. However, Lobengula did not trust him or any other white person apart from uh, missionaries. So Cecil Rhodes teamed up with Congregationalist John Smith Moffat, and together they persuaded... Lobengula to sign an exclusive Treaty of Friendship in February of 1888. So from there, they started trying to get Lobengula to give them mining concessions, which he was very extremely reluctant to do. Uh, he was pretty sure that if he gave these, you know, European people rights to his land, that they were never going to leave. But in October of the same of the same year, after lots of pressure, he finally did grant mining concessions. But what he actually signed did not just give them rights to mine on his territory. He basically signed away control of the kingdom. And with those concessions in hand, Rhodes went right to the British government, seeking a royal charter to start the British South Africa Company, with the goal of expanding British territory in that part of Africa. The charter was granted in 1889. The initial charter was for 25 years, and that was extended for 10 more years in 1915. Beginning in 1890, which was the same year that Cecil Rhodes also took up the post of Prime Minister of Cape Colony, the British South Africa Company expanded British ter territory into what's now Zambia and Malawi. So this was way beyond the original territory that was initially negotiated with uh, King Lobengula. And there are a zillion other things we could talk about when it comes to Cecil Rhodes' life and his activities in Africa, but uh, we actually need to move ahead in Zimbabwe's history specifically. And we're going to do that, but first we are going to have a brief word from a sponsor. That is the sound of a parcel being delivered to your home, or even something fun like friends coming over for dinner. But unfortunately, that sound can also signal that someone may be uh, trying to rob you by testing out your house. Uh, more than 95% of home break-ins actually happen during the day, and burglars almost always start by ringing your doorbell because they want to see if someone's home before they bust in and take your stuff. So with the Ring Video Doorbell, you can see and talk to anyone at your door from anywhere in the world using your smartphone. This has an advanced motion detection system that alerts you to someone at your door even if they don't actually ring the bell. It's kind of like having caller ID for your home. You know, I lived by myself in a house, 
for about five years, and this would have been amazing for me, especially that time that a cab driver brought an in extremely intoxicated man to my house who had previously lived there and never gotten a new driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> if I had been able to see who was at the door while I was still in my bed at two in the morning and then call the police, that would have been way more amazing than what actually went down that night. Tracy, stumbling is here. <laughs> <laughs> It was all kind of terrifying. Uh, yeah, I also think it would be handy to just be able to know if it's somebody I need to get up off the couch for, or if I can just let them drop the parcel. Right. Because sometimes I'm lazy and in my jammies. But the cool thing is that installing Ring takes minutes, and it works with either your current wiring, or you can use the built-in rechargeable battery for it so you don't have to wire it up. So this is going to put your mind at ease and protect your home with a video doorbell uh, that Time Magazine named one of the top 10 gadgets of 2014. So... Right now, our listeners can get the Ring Video Doorbell for $174, and that is $25 off the normal price. And to get that special price, go to ring.com slash history stuff right now. So again, protect your home, get a little peace of mind, go to ring.com slash history stuff for $25 off. That is ring.com slash history stuff. Now we're going to sort of trace the arc of Rhodesian history through its independence from Britain. In the 1890s, under the British South Africa Company, Great Britain acquired and appropriated the territory that would become northern and southern Rhodesia. It built new infrastructure, including lots of railroad, and used the paramilitary force as law enforcement. The British South Africa Company made money through mining and agriculture, as well as on collecting customs duties and other taxes and fees. On paper... The British South Africa Company often got the consent of local African leaders before beginning operations. But, as had been the case with King Lobangula, this consent was often reluctantly given at best. And Lobangula himself actually fled the region in 1893 following an armed resistance by the Ndebele against British advance. There were also multiple instances of the company running well past what was actually agreed to once that consent was actually given. And sometimes the company evaded uh, working with local governments at, without getting their consent at all. And naturally, the local people often put up a lot of resistance to this, including armed resistance. So the law enforcement arm of the company became a fighting force to try to put down local dissent. There was extensive fighting between the African population and the British South Africa Company until 1897, and when I made that passing aside in our uh, British migrant child migrant program episode to what was happening in Rhodesia, like those are the sorts of things that I just thought were happening, like the things that very frequently have happened in the like history of colonialism in terms of uh, like making unequal treaties and putting down local resistance with force and that kind of like those are the sort of things that I thought were probably going on in Rhodesia when I made that one passing aside. The British South Africa Company administered southern Rhodesia until 1923. But after the end of World War I, Rhodesia started pressuring the company to be allowed to govern itself. Eventually, a royal commission studied the issue, ultimately offering two options. Southern Rhodesia could join the Union of South Africa or become self-governing. So this issue was put to a vote. But the thing was, the only people who had the right to vote were the 34,000 Europeans living in Rhodesia, not the African population of Rhodesia who did not have the right to vote. The vote wound up going in favor of 
self-government for southern Rhodesia. So Rhodesia at this point became a self-governing British colony. Uh, With Britain retaining control of external affairs for southern Rhodesia and having legislative power, uh, basically a veto power, over uh, issues that would directly affect the African population. The British Colonial Office took control of northern Rhodesia in 1924. And as we said at the top of the show, that's now Zambia. And from here on out, we're going to focus on the southern part of Rhodesia going forward. We're also going to skip ahead by about 40 years. And during much of that 40 years, Rhodesia's economy did grow overall. A lot of the money came from mining copper and gold and other materials, as well as raising cattle and growing crops like corn and tobacco. For a lot of that time, the white government operated with an attitude that Africans could eventually take over governing Rhodesia once they were experienced enough to cooperate with other governments on an international scale and basically keep up the economic progress that had been made under white rule. This changed radically under Prime Minister Ian Douglas Smith, who took office in April of 1964. He was a war hero from the Royal Air Force who had survived both crashing and being shot down and had returned home with damage to one eye and part of his face. From the very beginning of his entry into Rhodesian politics, he wanted to protect white minority rule. Uh, For a little more on his political background, in 1948, Smith had been elected to the Southern Rhodesian Assembly, and he joined the governing federal party in 1953. He continued to be part of this party until 1961. The thing that prompted him to leave was that the federal party supported a new constitution, which would have allowed black Africans in Rhodesia to have a bigger part in parliament. Black Africans were, at this point, a huge majority, but had very little representation in the white government. So with the federal party supporting this new constitution, Smith, who disagreed, broke away from it and helped found a new party called the Rhodesian Front. The party platform of the Rhodesian Front included gaining independence from Britain and continuing to govern Rhodesia via a white minority and not handing over power to the uh, majority black population. The Rhodesian Front gained support from white supremacists and they won the election in 1962. That same year, the U.N. General Assembly called for a more liberal constitution that would allow equal representation for the black population in Rhodesia. In 1964, Smith became prime minister of Rhodesia, making him the first native-born prime minister of the nation. And he basically got to work trying to cement white rule over Rhodesia and to keep the country existing in a state of apartheid. He refused to even discuss reforms to the constitution that would let the majority black population have a proportional voice in the government, and he arrested and banned black nationalist leaders. Organized black African resistance to minority white rule had really started to grow, basically as soon as Rhodesia had become a self-governing colony. And by the 1960s, black nationalist groups were emerging as an organized uh, presence within the country. This included the Zimbabwe African People's Union, or ZAPU, and the Zimbabwe African National Union, or ZANU. And two prominent leaders within these movements were Joshua Nkomo and Robert Mugabe. Relationships with Great Britain were also starting to sour at this point. Smith tried to negotiate with Britain for total independence, but the British government's position was that Rhodesia's black population needed to have a voice in its government that reflected the size of its population. At this point, there were 220,000 white Rhodesians and almost 4 million black Rhodesians, almost none of whom were permitted to vote or hold office. 
So distributing power so that the races could be represented equally was something that Smith absolutely refused to consider, even though it was literally the one thing that would have made Great Britain open to the idea of Rhodesian independence. Eventually, negotiations between Rhodesia and Great Britain totally broke down. So on November 11th of 1965, Ian Smith issued the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, also called the UDI, in which Rhodesia declared its independence from Great Britain. He said this was the only way to maintain, quote, civilized standards. The tone of this document is, like, very similar to the, uh, the like, United States Declaration of Independence from Britain. But the wording of it is it has a whole other subtext. It's basically like, we've been governing ourselves for this long, and we have seen repeatedly other nations uh, have their own populations take over, and it hasn't gone as well. So... We respect you, your majesty, but we're independent now. <laughs> That's basically what it boils down to. So uh, this unilateral declaration of independence did not go over well, and it did not go over well on an international scale. The international community was outraged, and most nations did not recognize Rhodesia as a legitimate country at all. For a sense of the timing of when this all happened, uh, this was two years after the March on Washington and Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. It was a year after President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Martin Luther King Jr. was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. It was the same year as the Selma to Montgomery March and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in the United States. So happening concurrently with black Americans seeking the rights that had already been granted to them in the Constitution, black Africans in Rhodesia were seeking the right to participate in the government basically at all. And Ian Smith had gone so far as to declare independence from Great Britain rather than do that. At Britain's request, the UN Security Council imposed economic sanctions against Rhodesia in 1966, the first time it had used this tactic. Smith responded by defaulting on all of Rhodesia's debts, which were backed by Great Britain, and that put Britain on the hook for everything that Rhodesia owned. It's basically a very novel way of... uh stabbing Great Britain's economy while balancing the Rhodesian economy. Uh, there's also an argument to be made that uh, that this all would have been over very quickly if Britain had invaded Rhodesia, but Britain did not want to do that. So Smith cut off all ties with Great Britain and started the wheels turning on a new constitution for Rhodesia and one that would, instead of eventually handing over power to the black majority, one that would make Rhodesia a republic, while guaranteeing that the rule of that republic would be solidly, solidly in the hands of a white minority permanently. All of this was put to a vote, but the people who had the right to vote in Rhodesia at this point were overwhelmingly white. So Smith's plan passed by a landslide. Parliament passed the new constitution in November of 1969, and Rhodesia declared itself a republic on the following March 2nd. So in this point, the... Several of the black nationalist organizations that had already existed in Rhodesia banded together to form the Patriotic Front. Both Joshua Nakomo and Robert, Robert Mugave were involved in this organization. The Patriotic Front started leading guerrilla warfare efforts to try to take control of Rhodesia back from the minority to the majority. As the Patriotic Front fought against the Rhodesian armed forces, the economy of Rhodesia started to crumble under the strain. White Rhodesians started to emigrate out of Rhodesia, and this war went on until 1977. 
Nearly 30,000 people died, and most of those people were black Africans. There are a lot of reasons why this went on for so long. Uh, Some of them were that, like, number one, guerrilla fighting tends to be drawn out and kind of horrible. Uh, But in addition to that, there were several factions within the African population, and sometimes they were good at working together, and then sometimes they had sort of fundamentally different viewpoints on how things should proceed, and it just became this long, long, drawn-out conflict that was pretty brutal and gruesome. Finally, in 1977, after immense pressure from diplomatic and economic and military directions, Smith started negotiating with Abel Muzariwa, who was of the United African National Council. He was a moderate black Rhodesian leader and a bishop in the Methodist Church. Power started to be transferred from the minority white government to black Rhodesians in 1978, although at this point, the goal was to give black Rhodesians the right to vote while still protecting the interests of the white ruling class. At this point, Rhodesia also became known as Rhodesia Zimbabwe. In 1979, in an election in which the black population had much greater access to voting rights, the United African National Council won a majority of the seats that had been allotted for black citizens. But the UANC did not actually have the support of the Patriotic Front. One of the reasons for this was actually because the, this new plan basically guaranteed the white minority a certain proportion of seats in the government so that they would continue to be represented in the government. Uh, but the Patriotic Front really wanted the Zimbabwe, uh, what would be Zimbabwe, to become like a black national state. So they were opposed to there being representation for the white minority in the government. So that was why this continued uh, to have guerrilla warfare going on uh, because the, the Patriotic Front didn't really agree with the plan that had been put into place. So at the end of that year, Britain briefly took control again until a new round of elections could be held. ZANU, which had taken the name Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front, won a majority of seats, and Robert Mugabe became the first prime minister of Zimbabwe. On April 18, 1980, Zimbabwe gained recognition as an independent state. So after all that, it seems kind of obvious why the flag of Rhodesia might be associated with white supremacy today, but there is actually a whole other layer to this story. Not just because Rhodesia was operated as a white supremacist state with uh, Ian Smith as the prime minister. A lot of it actually has to do with Zimbabwe in the intervening years since it became an internationally recognized state uh, up until today. When Robert Mugabe became prime minister of Zimbabwe, his goal was to move the nation towards being a one-party socialist state in which disparities between races and classes were abolished. The ongoing warfare and strife had also damaged the economy and the infrastructure and social services needed big investments as well. If you ever watch the international news, you know that Robert Mugabe still leads Zimbabwe. He's now the executive president after having changed the constitution in 1987. And a lot of those intervening years have been extremely troubled, to put it extremely mildly. At the very beginning of its existence as a recognized state, Zimbabwe experienced drought, continued white immigration out of the country, and a very slow recovery from the tens of thousands of deaths during the warfare that led to its independence. Zimbabwe then went through five years of civil war after Mugabe charged Joseph Nkomo with plotting a coup against it. And in 1988, the nation lost its international aid after intervening in the Democratic Republic of Congo's own civil war. 
purportedly so Mugabe could protect his own interests there. There were a series of land management programs that were meant to return land that had previously been seized or otherwise gained, not necessarily uh, ethically, by the Europeans, and a lot of those backfired. In some cases, for example, farms were seized and then not put back into production, which forced the people who had been working there into unemployment. In other cases, seized farmland was put back into production, but without experienced farmers to keep things running smoothly. All of this further depressed Zimbabwe's economy while also leading to food shortages. Although the economy did grow between uh, 2010 and 2013, it was by that point just deeply damaged, and it slowed significantly in 2014. And the nation has suffered from extreme inflation as it printed more money to make up for its deficit. There is also a lot of criticism of Mugabe himself. As his popularity has waned, elections in Zimbabwe have increasingly been described by international observer observers as neither free nor fair. Uh, some of these are a little more recent history than we normally get into in depth on the podcast, but there are whole weird shenanigans uh, with voter suppression and coercion and violence. And in one case, uh, an election that Mugabe lost but there was not a majority, so there had to be a runoff, and then he won the runoff, and that whole thing appears very suspicious to a lot of people. Currently, according to the CIA World Factbook, Zimbabwe's life expectancy at birth is just 55 years. By 2013 estimates, the adult prevalence rate for HIV in Zimbabwe is almost 15%. So, white supremacists' adoption of the Rhodesian flag as an emblem is really about the comparison of Rhodesia under white rule when the black population was deeply discriminated against, but the nation was prospering on paper, uh, and afterward when the majority is adequately represented in the government, but the nation itself is home to just years and years of struggle and strife and a leader who has become notorious in a lot of ways around the globe for various uh, reasons. <laughs> like, all I could be a whole other show. So not the most happy fun time, but it does contextualize a little bit why why in the news there was so much commentary about the the photos that had emerged of Dylan Roth and his jacket that had the uh Rhodesian flag on it. Yeah, he also had a flag of uh like a South African apartheid era flag uh which was more obvious to a lot of people, like the story of apartheid in South Africa, I think is a lot more known to people today than probably uh, the story of Rhodesia. I say that in part because uh, also one of the reasons that I have a suspicion that, that the story of Rhodesia is a lot less well known is that after I had been researching the podcast on the child migrant program, but before uh, Rhodesia suddenly became national news, uh, I was actually in, in a room of trivia pub trivia with lots of smart people and one of the questions was about why Rhodesia declared its independence from Britain uh no one knew I knew part of the story which was the part where they had been trying to maintain a privileged white ruling class but like not the whole story of declaring independence from Britain in order to maintain a state of white supremacy so I have a much lighter topic for some listener mail I I know you have a lighter topic for listener mail, so let's move to that, because it's going to yeah. be a little bit fun. It is a little bit fun. I have email from Larry, who uh, wrote to us after our episode 
um, on the uh, archaeological work regarding the Harvard Indian School, which was actually Holly's episode. You may have noticed that normally when we do listener mail, Holly often reads mail that's related to episodes that she was the primary researcher on. I often read uh, mail related to the episodes that I was a primary researcher on. Doing the opposite today, because <laughs> that uh, that episode was entirely Holly's ballgame. Uh, but I'm going to take this email for reasons that are about to come obvious. So Larry <laughs> says, first off, first off, love the podcast. I always like hearing about local events that I never knew happened locally, especially this most recent podcast. There was one pronunciation in the beginning of the episode that caught me off guard. Massachusetts cities and areas have weird pronunciations. Worcester, Haverhill, Leicester, etc. And for those of you not looking at this email with me on paper, those look like Worcester, Haverhill, and Leicester. Peabody is also the same. I could be mistaken since it is the museum name, but the town of Peabody is pronounced Peabody. Keep rolling out the podcast. It makes my job driving to sites as a wastewater engineer more enjoyable. Thanks, uh, or regards, Larry. So thank you, Larry, for sending this note for a couple reasons. One, it is Peabody. <laughs> Holly and I had a whole conversation about whether to re-record like the time that she said Peabody yep. because it looks like Peabody on paper. I think 99% of English speakers would probably uh, in America say Peabody. Well, um, and Diana and Trish were so gracious, they did not correct me because they're very sweet women. And no. Didn't, didn't want to make you totally me look said, foolish. Yeah, you said Peabody on the phone with them. Uh, we had, The only reason, though, that I know that Peabody, Massachusetts, and the Peabody Museum, which are both named after George Peabody, and I don't know why he said his name that way, uh, the only reason I know that's how those are pronounced that way is because I live here now. <laughs> <laughs> You've actually lived there for a while now. A bit. Uh, surprise, everyone. So, uh, basically, uh, we've talked about my fiancé before. He lives here in Massachusetts. Uh his job is infinitely less portable than my job is, and so I moved. Uh, and our plan was that we were going to move. I was going to move. <laughs> we didn't both move. Uh, I was going to move. We were going to make sure everything still worked with the podcast, and then we were going to tell people. But because of the lag time between when we record podcasts and when they come out, once we had established that everything was fine and the podcast still worked and we were still able to do it and people were still enjoying it, uh, it seemed really awkward to then be like, oh, by the way, this happened. Yeah. Um, so basically, we're really glad that uh, that Larry sent us this note because it seemed like a good segue uh, to a secret that was previously known to like people at work, friends and family, uh, some random folks who went to a Western Massachusetts meetup with John Hodgman uh, and the audience of Stuff You Should Know's live show in Massachusetts. <laughs> Uh, which I will admit was a reason why we were like, we should probably explain this to everybody before they're like, hey, what is going on with this thing that I heard from Stuff You Should Know? Yeah, so we, we've had a couple of times when people have, uh, we've had visitors to the office or whatever, and they've been like, hey, that's so cool. Is Tracy here? And I'm like, she's not in today. <laughs> yeah. She's teleworking today, which is true. But I didn't, but the cat wasn't out of the bag, and it wasn't my information <laughs> to just blurt out, so... Right. So that cat is out of that bag now. Thank you, Larry, for being our segue to that announcement. <laughs> that, uh... Oh, right. Nate DeMeo also, uh, when we recently talked to Nate DeMeo, he was like, yeah, I thought it was kind of weird that you went on a vacation to uh, to Dover, 
<laughs> uh, how would you get there from yeah. from Atlanta? And the answer is on a train from Boston. Yeah. Uh, now you know. Now you know. That only one of us is in Atlanta and the other is in Boston. So that's the scooperoo. Once in a while, I mean, Tracy comes back to the, the House of Works main office uh, usually about once a month. And sometimes we record uh-huh. here, but usually it's online. So, yep. The internet's a magical thing. Word. Uh, so thanks very much, Larry, for writing to us about Peabody. I do not know why George Peabody said his name that way. I did Google, why did George Peabody pronounce his name that way? And I did not find an answer. Uh, it does look exactly like Peabody. So anyway, if you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, <laughs> we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We are also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a spread shirt store where you can get lots of shirts, including one that says I heart exhumations and the heart is a real heart. I love that one. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. And if you put the word Zimbabwe in the search bar, you're going to find a couple of articles. One is the top 10 most dangerous places you should definitely visit. The other is top 10 countries operating in the red. That gives you some flavor about how things are going in Zimbabwe right now. Uh, you can also come to our website, MissedInHistory.com, where you will find an archive of every episode we have ever done and show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done, lots of other cool stuff. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Family planning. Please visit PlannedParenthood.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. The Berkeley Free Clinic was founded in 1969 as a street medicine clinic, but quickly found a permanent home in the Berkeley community. It has become an icon in the area and has served countless thousands in a variety of ways during its 45-year history. Fees have never been charged for any services, materials, medications, or supplies provided at the Berkeley Free Clinic. Income has been generated solely via individual or organizational donations and government programs. To volunteer your time or to make a donation or for more information visit berkeleyfreeclinic.org this public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at mutiny radio hello everybody thank you for listening to mutiny radio i'm global val and you're listening to women's magazine here at Mutiny Radio, we're an outpost. I'm an outpost here for the KPFA Women's Magazine, which is on 94.1 every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. A great uh, wide group of women work on that program um, and uh, regularly contribute uh, to that weekly show on 94.1. I am one of those contributors, but I am here at Mutiny Radio every Friday uh, doing my thing over here uh, holding it down in the Mission District of San Francisco, my hometown, five generations, six generations deep, actually. And um, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to come at you here from the, from the uh, studios of Mutiny Radio on 21st and Florida Streets. And at the 3 o'clock hour, you can come down and join us right here at 21st and Florida for the Common Thread Collective Open Mic, Community Open Mic Politics 
poetry, music, activism, awesomeness, all those good things. Um, so uh, we've got a few different uh, topics I want to talk to you about today, but first, I feel like it's a radio show, so we should start with some music. Uh, I'm going to play some music from Bonfire Madigan. Um, you should check her out. Um, a badass punk cellist, uh, among other things. And so um, I'm going to play a song of hers called Mad Skywriting. Hope you enjoy it. Take 
That was Mad Skywriting from Bonfire Madigan. Check out her music at Bonfire Madigan. That's M-A-D-I-G-A-N, bonfiremadigan.com. And yes, existence should be enough, right, for all of us to belong. It's all about the love, and uh, that's what we like to promote here on Mutiny Radio. And uh, today, talking about being enough, uh, just existing, being enough to have rights and uh, privacy, uh, and especially in the United States of America, where we have traditionally prided ourselves in our rights and our privacy. Of course, we've seen those rights get whittled away over the past, well, it's been, it's been w- getting whittled away for quite a while now. That was kind of hard to say. I'm not going to try to say that again. Um, but we definitely see a a big surge, it, see, it, it appears, uh, attacking women, uh, women's rights, women's access to health care. Um, and we see that most most prevalently, and even in mainstream media right now, about the attacks on Planned Parenthood, um, which, of course, serves uh, men and women across the country, low-income um, health services. It's It's not just an abortion clinic, as right-wing extremists uh, would have you, uh, you know, have people believe, um, actually only 3% of their procedures that they perform are abortions. And we have to remember that abortion is legal and protected by the Constitution of the United States. So uh, e- even even to put that argument in, in there is, is, you know, well, it's obviously what people get upset about. So we have to talk about it. Um, but anyhow, Planned Parenthood does a, offers so many services, uh, STD screenings, um, uh, birth control, and even even just kind of regular uh, health checkups. Um, and and it's and it's proven to be so vitally important for um, especially women across the country. But like I said, also men as well can go as and uh, and get their services. But Planned Parenthood has been under massive attack for years. But currently, um, there was this big scandal from a, a couple months back where this 
really strangely edited video had shown um, these kind of undercover people who had gone into a Planned Parenthood to try to broker a deal to get um, fetus tissue, right? And so all, and then these these videos came out, and of course people like to believe what they see, um, and uh, often don't follow up to actually see. But these videos have been, you know, debunked, um, defunct, and shown that it was just highly edited and, and completely misconstrued. And let me tell you, as a radio producer, and even though my shows here at Mutiny Radio are live, I obviously edit my shows before I send them off to KPFA. And you can do a lot with editing. Um, I mean, I, I don't uh, tend to be manipulative with it. But, I mean, even think, uh, what when I think about editing things, I actually think back to Stalin um, <laughs> in, in the Soviet Union, um, and, you know, World War II, post-World War II, where one of the common practices was through uh, early photography manipulation, whereby you'd see Stalin and a, a line of his generals, and then Next time you saw the picture, it was the same photograph, but one of those people had been liquidated, eliminated, um, and just taken out. And then, but it looked like exactly the same photo, right? So that was some of the early manipulation of, of uh, you know, the, just in in terms of editing. And of course, we know these days there's so many capabilities. So, so this video, this video that came out. Um, has has been proven to be edited uh, and and misconstrued uh, as as some sort of fact that oh Planned Parenthood is selling fetus tissue you know to anybody who walks in the door um, anyhow uh, they were majorly attacked um, by the central government um, that was one of the big uh, one of the big threats from uh, the United States Congress was a threat of another government shut down because they were fighting over funding Planned Parenthood, uh, specifically through Medicaid, Medicare. Um, so flash forward to this week, um, and we see this attack continue and in, in really, really just appalling, appalling ways. Um, so there's an article in the New York Times that says Texas orders health clinics to turn over patient data. So I want to read you a little bit of that article. Uh, three days after Governor Greg Abbott of Texas announced his decision to end Medicaid funding for Planned Parenthood, Texas State Health Department investigators showed up on Thursday at Planned Parenthood health centers in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Brownsville with orders to turn over thousands of pages of documents, including patients' records and employees' home addresses and telephone numbers. Some, but not all, of the extensive records sought by the state related specifically to abortion. For example, Planned Parenthood South Texas was told to produce five years of records, whether electronic, paper, or ultrasound, ultrasound concerning any patients billed to Medicaid who had had an abortion in which any part of the fetus uh, was removed or procured for research use. Um... I mean, this is st storming. Uh, it's uh, storming the 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 temple, right? Getting medical records, um, employee records. Uh, I'll continue reading this this New York Times article here. 
Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast was to turn over a complete copy of certain patients' records, including doctor's orders, nursing notes, and lab tests, as well as the center's appointment books, patient sign-in sheets, and contracts. Uh, A spokeswoman for Planned Parenthood of the greater Texas area, uh, Sarah Wheat, said, um, spokeswoman, rather, she said, we're concerned about the breadth and the depth of what they're asking for. Um, The battle over Medicaid funding for Planned Parenthood has been at a high pitch nationwide since the release starting in July of videos secretly taken by abortion opponents posing as representatives of a biomedical firm seeking fetal tissue. The videos purported to show Planned Parenthood officials trying to illegally profit from the sale of fetal tissue, and their release has led many states to question whether Planned Parenthood should be eligible for continued Medicaid funding. Uh, the organization has said that the videos are heavily edited and that it never violated federal law regarding the use of fetal tissue in medical research. Alabama, Arkansas, and Louisiana have also moved to cut off Medicaid funding for Planned Parenthood. The group has filed suit to stop the cuts in each of those states. In Texas, the group has 30 days to appeal the Medicaid termination. 30 days. It's like getting evicted, folks. In the notice of Medicaid termination, that's Texas Inspector General for the state's Health and Human Services Commission, Stuart W. Bowen Jr., sent uh, sent Monday to the Planned Parenthood affiliates. He said the state had determined that the group was, quote, no longer capable of performing medical services in a professionally competent, safe, legal, and ethical manner. The notices cited two reasons for that decision. First, they said that the videos showed that the organization had a policy of altering its abortion procedures to better procure fetal tissue in violation of medical standards. In addition, they said the videos showed people posing as buyers of fetal tissue being allowed to handle bloody tissue wearing only gloves in violation of infection controlled standards. The notices also said that the state had found a pattern of illegal billing practices that amounted to Medicaid fraud. Chris Coutrone, a spokesman for the Inspector General, said he could not discuss the Planned Parenthood investigation or what the health investigators were looking for in their orders to turn over records. Planned Parenthood saw, saw, said it saw the record requests as a politically motivated fishing expedition and one more battle in the state's long fight to limit abortion. And the Executive Vice President of Planned Parenthood Federation of America, Don Uh, Leguens said in a statement, quote, it is completely outrageous that Texas officials are using thoroughly discredited, fraudulent videos to cut women off from preventative health care, including cancer screening, HIV testing, and birth control. So this is what's happening in America, folks. This is what's happening not just in Texas, but in several states across uh, the country. At least 13 states are enmeshed in uh, battles, um, to defund uh, Planned Parenthood, and uh, it seems to be a growing trend, and it's a very scary one um, for women's rights, for women's health, and for our whole social health, because if you're driving um, women back into the back alleys uh, for abortions, or if you're just keeping healthy um, young women away from preventative health services, uh, we're going to have an even bigger medical problem um, across this country. We're going to have much, so many more people who are in need of medical attention who can't get it. And it's just this really, really atrocious trend, uh, scaling back, uh, pulling back on rights and access to 
simple medical services. And you know, the rest of the world, I mean, the reason I call myself Global Val, I've traveled, I've been to 17 different countries, and the rest of the world looks at the United States of America, and, and they're very humble and very kind. They're like, we understand, you know, we don't hold anything against American people. We know that the government is really um, making poor policy decisions and that uh, people are often disempowered. So, like, w we've got this global perspective looking at the United States, which is something that the United States, I think, overall lacks, which is a, a global perspective. Um, but <laughs> it's people around the world say, I can't believe the United States of America doesn't have health care for its citizens. I mean, we're a country that fights over whether or not somebody should be allowed to go to the doctor. Um, that's, that's a pretty low... That's pretty low, folks. Um, so uh, however you may feel about Planned Parenthood, however you may feel about abortion, um, I think everybody can agree that if you need to go to the doctor, you should be able to. doesn't matter how much money you have. doesn't matter how much insurance you may carry. Um, if you need medical attention, uh, you should be able to get it. And if you're out there thinking, well, I'm okay, I have medical care, I have insurance, and so I can get access to it, just imagine if you couldn't. Um, so I want to play a little more music from Bonfire Madigan because uh, she also is an activist in the men for uh, mental health and looking at things with kind of trying to take labels away from, uh, from uh, mental health uh, distresses and uh, incorporate and build community. And that's what we're trying to do. Just build community, build awareness, and um, let's take care of each other, shall we? Here's another song from her called Dishes and Spoons. Thanks for listening to Women's Magazine. I had to take a deep breath after that little rant. I try not to rant too much. Um, if you're listening out there and you find that to be 
uh, a, a statement to the contrary of what's really happening, well, get in touch with me. I'm, I'm uh, Women's Magazine with Global Val on Facebook, um, mutinyradio.fm, uh, trying to do the show every week. Um, but speaking of these, these gross attacks on privacy, medical records, the state of Texas has been demanding from Planned Parenthood centers across the state of Texas asking for women's medical records, employees' home addresses, doctors' notes, lab tests, prescriptions, nurses' notes, um, ultrasounds, um, these types of personal medical records that the state of Texas is demanding from Planned Parenthood centers, a gross violation of our privacy. Um, but I, as I was preparing for today's show and thinking about this, I was sitting over in a, in a coffee shop in the Haight. I was sitting in People's Cafe next to a big bookshelf. And uh, there was a book on the shelf that was called True Women. And uh, I was like, well, let's pick it up. It's called True Women, and it's by a woman named Janice Woods Wendell. And uh, as I browsed through it, it was ki- it's kind of a story of the different generations of women in her family. Um, but at the beginning of the book, she decided to include, um, this is a, a, a minority, a minority report. So this is, uh, back from 1868. So, um, from the journal of the reconstruction convention of Austin, Texas, 1868, um, the Committee Minority Report Against Women's Suffrage. And since we just had an election, I'd like to remind everybody that women have only had the right to vote for 95 years in the United States of America. And so this was the, uh, back in 1868, when women were already trying to fight for the right to vote, uh, which we know didn't actually happen until 1920, finally, um, through blood, sweat, and tears, to be trite, um, this was the minority report against uh, women suffrage. So this was included in the True Women book, and it from this is Texas, again, 1868. <clears throat> sir, let's see, it's, it's addressed, right? Sir, sir, we the undersigned members of the Committee on State Affairs. After examining the declaration presented by Mr. Mundine on female suffrage, respectfully present this minority report and unhesitatingly state that we are opposed to female suffrage. Not because we think them of less capacity than men, but forsooth, we think that by the very law of their nature, they are transcending above the active participation in the government of the country. And because their native modesty and inborn refinement of feeling causes every true woman to, th- to shrink from mingling in the busy noise of election days. They are conscious that they are exercised by keeping themselves in their <coughs> appropriate spheres and by exhibiting all those gentle qualities directly opposed to the rougher sex in their capacities as wives and mothers an influence mightier far than that of the elective franchise. We are opposed to it further because we believe that the good sense of every true woman in the land teaches her that granting them the power to vote is a direct open insult to their sex by the implication that they are so unwomanly 
as to desire the privilege. We therefore believe that such a declaration should not pass this body of gentlemen. Texas, 1868. Texas, 2015. Give us your medical records, bitches. You're listening to Women's Magazine on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. Check out my blog, globalval.blogspot.com. That's G-L-O-B-A-L-V-A-L.blogspot.com. And I want to continue reading from a book that I've been reading periodically on the show called When God Was a Woman by Merlin Stone. It's an anthropological uh, look at the ancient goddess religion and the role of... uh, that the Judeo-Christian attitudes uh, towards women have developed, um, that have developed um, in response to a very, very ancient, ancient goddess worship tradition. Um, So again, sending out love to women around the world. Here is a couple little excerpts um, from When God Was a Woman in places, and in a chapter called Where Woman Was Deified. Ethiopia and Libya. All authority was vested in the woman. That's the quote. 49 years before the birth of Christ, 
A man from Roman Sicily wrote of his travels in northern Africa and some of the Near Eastern countries, recording his observations of people along the way. He was keenly interested in cultural patterns and was certainly one of the forerunners of the fields of anthropology and sociology. This man was known as Diodorus Sicilis, Diodorus of Sicily. Many statements reporting the high or even dominant status of women were included in his writings. We may question why he, more than any other classical writer, recorded so much information about women warriors and matriarchy in the nations all about him. He did not belittle the men who lived in such social systems. That did not appear to be his aim. Indeed, he seemed to be rather admiring and respectful of the women who wielded such power. It was Diodorus who reported that the women of Ethiopia carried arms, practiced communal marriage, and raised their children so communally that they often confused who the natural mother had been. In parts of Libya, where the goddess Nath was highly esteemed, accounts of Amazon women still lingered even in Roman times. Diodorus described a nation in Libya, in Libya as follows. All authority was vested in the woman, who discharged every kind of public duty. The men looked after domestic affairs, just as the women do among ourselves, and did as they were told by their wives. They were not allowed to undertake war service, or to exercise any functions of government, or to fill any public office, such as might have given them more spirit to set themselves up against the women. The children were handed over immediately after birth to the men, who reared them on the milk and other food suitable to their age. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition, everybody? We were just talking about the United States of America in 1868. Uh, men opposed to women voting because it just seemed so, we'll argue, so beneath their, their, their moral standards that they would even want to be involved in, in, in politics. Um, now looking back at, at a commentary on, on 2,000 years ago, Libya, um, saying that the, the men had the same thing, where they were discouraged from having public office, you know, lest they come rise up to challenge the women. Can't we all just work together, folks? Come on. All right, I'll continue. Diodorus wrote of warrior women existing in Libya, reporting that these women had formed into armies which had invaded other lands. According to him, they revered the goddess as their major deity and set up sanctuaries for her worship. Though he gives no specific name, the accounts probably refer to the Libyan warrior goddess known as Nath, who was also revered under that name in Egypt. Egypt. In prehistoric Egypt, the goddess held supremacy in Upper Egypt, the south, as Neghept, symbolized as a vulture. The women of Lower Egypt, which includes the northern delta region, worshipped their supreme goddess as a cobra, using the name Udazit, the great serpent. From about 3000 BC onward, the goddess, known as Nut, Net, or Nit, probably derived from Nekhept, was said to have existed when nothing else had yet been created. She then created all that had come into being. According to Egyptian mythology, it was she who first placed Ra, the sun god, in the sky. Other texts of Hathor as Hathor in this role of creator of existence, explaining that she took the form of a serpent at that time. In Egypt, the concept of the goddess always remained vital. The introduction of male deities, such as the just as the dynastic periods begin around 3000 BC, will be more thoroughly discussed in chapter 4. So I guess you have to go pick up this book. 
by Merlin Stone when God was a woman. This probably lessened her original supremacy, as it was known in the Elithic societies. But goddess worship continued in conjunction with this. The women of Egypt appear to have benefited in many ways. Diodorus wrote that at length of the worship of the goddess Isis, the Greek translation for Oset, who had incorporated the aspects of both Uazit and Hathor. Isis was also closely associated with the goddess as, goddess as Nut, who was mythologically recorded as her mother. In paintings, Isis wore the wings of Nekhept. Diodorus explained that, according to Egyptian religion, Isis was revered as the inventor of agriculture, as a great healer and physician, and as one who first established the laws of justice in the land. I think we should let that paragraph stand and remember that Isis is a goddess and should not whose name should not be taken in vain by a bunch of murderous mercenaries on the other side of this very small planet um, acting against women, against choice, against freedom. And freedom is what we're all about here. So here's a little more music uh, from Bonfire Madigan. I'm going to choose this song called Smoke Signals because that's what we're shooting up here at MutinyRadio.fm, Women's Magazine.
You're listening to Women's Magazine with Global Val here on MutinyRadio.fm. That was more music from Bonfire Madigan, Smoke Signals from the Burn Pile. Uh, yeah, send up the signal, folks. Hey, I'd like to end today's show on a on a slightly higher note, a more positive note. Um, and uh, from a very odd source, the president, uh, President Obama, who I definitely do not like to cheerlead for, But um, President Obama on Friday announced that he had rejected the request from a Canadian company to build the Keystone XL pipeline. It it ended a seven-year review that had become a flashpoint in debate over his climate policies. And I might add, from here at Mutiny Radio, we were talking to folks who were out there on the front lines uh, protesting the the Keystone XL pipeline, um, calling in from the road uh, within the past year. Um, of, of people gathering along along the site to protest this gigantic project. Um, here's what the pipeline would do. So so uh, basically Obama rejected, um, he vetoed an, the, the, he vetoed the approval of the project, this, this uh, measure to, that would speed up approval and he vetoed that. But um, this pipeline, this pipeline, this Keystone XL pipeline, was a proposed 1,179-mile pipeline, which would have carried 800,000 barrels a day of carbon-heavy petroleum from the Canadian oil sands to the Gulf Coast. That's what the XL pipeline is about. So um, thank you, President Obama, for vetoing that. Um, And, uh, of course, it's in advance of a United Nations uh, meeting, so a summit meeting on climate change in Paris in December, um, which I'm sure a lot of activists will be out uh, to address from the streets, of course, um, and hopefully from the inside as well. Uh, let's, Let's keep this global trend going where we actually uh, see that leadership, although it may falter in other ways, um, we can at least look at this climate, look at this planet, and try to protect what we have here, which is our life sustenance. Um, So I'm happy to report that news today that that Obama vetoed the XL pipeline. But of course, that doesn't mean that the battle is over. Uh, Surely a lot of 
this this project will still get pushed from various directions so stay on top of it but for now let's say uh, so I want to end the show with a poem that I wrote just the other day speaking of mother nature hurricane Patricia was the uh, which hit uh, which made landfall this past week in the central Pacific coast of Mexico was recorded to be the largest hurricane ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. And it built really fast. Within 24 hours, it, had, it like, o- over the ocean, it had gone up to, like, 200 miles an hour uh, winds. But then once it hit land, it... it um, it dissipated in, in about half that time. So here's a, here's a poem from Mother Nature, Mexican Hurricane Patricia. Circuitous and calamitous, centrifugal and disastrous. Hurricane builds, crashes, and passes. North American mountains breaks its mass, and coastal castles of broken glass immortalize it in lore. Ruinous is hard to ignore. The history of these hills echoes in a breeze deep as the roots of trees embedded to endure, and memories ensure the grandeur of Mother Nature. I'm Global Val. Thank you for listening to Women's Magazine today. And remember, just when your aspirations seem outrageous, like wanting privacy or uh, to protect the planet, just when those aspirations seem outrageous, remember that inspiration is contagious. Peace and thank you. Stay tuned for the Common Thread Collective coming up next live at Mutiny Radio. Peace.
about our cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby! There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Join us every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. for Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse here on Mutiny Radio. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin, bringing you the best of San Francisco's underground comedy scene here every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. It's only $2. You can bring your own beer and listen to comedy here every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m., 21st in Florida. It's mutinyradio.fm. The House of Pride radio show, LGBT radio for everyone. Funky interviews, funky beats, talking drag queens, and much, much more. It's LGBT radio for everyone. Listen live every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride radio, LGBT radio for everyone. Celebrating the considerable contributions of the LGBT community in San Francisco and beyond. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Listen here for hot new local beats by LGBT artists and listen to live interviews. Tune in, turn on every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities Tweeka Turner and Pearl T. Are you sick of reading the news? Do you even bother to read the news anymore? Do you need someone to read it to you because it's just so disgusting and depressing? If so, then the Weekly Review is the show for you. Join Roman Reimer as Roman reads the news, whether it be LGBTQ issues, cannabis legalization, prison abolition, police brutality, or many other issues that sometimes the media just doesn't feel the need to cover. Listen in, Fridays at noon, Mutiny Radio. Roman's also joined by activists, community organizers, artists, and many other great folks working to make the world a better place. Have no fear. The news is here. And if you feel like yelling about it, well, then Roman will be yelling with you. The Weekly Review, Fridays at noon on Mutiny Radio. Hello, comrades. This is your comrade, Zach Wiseman host of government-sponsored program, Communist Folding Chairs, mandated by the Kremlin to occur every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m., broadcast by our comrades at mutinyradio.fm. Sit, relax, 
listen to my comrades in stand-up comedy march honorably through their cold palancets, and other comrades make fun of them. Because in Mother Russia, if you can't laugh about starving for turnip and beet and attention, you are a capitalist pig, and the KB KGB will visit you shortly. Every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Looking to invest in the future of your community? MutinyRadio.fm and the Boys and Girls Club Mission Clubhouse needs your help. Please donate to keep the Radio Classroom Institute right now alive on the air every Thursday from 4.50 to 5.50 p.m. Donations are tax deductible. Donate online at www.mutinyradio.fm or just stop by the station at 21st Street and Florida. That's 2781 21st Street and throw some cash in the big glass jar. Stop by to experience live audience-friendly shows every day of the week and know that you're supporting the future of the mission by keeping free speech alive for all ages. This PSA is brought to you by your friends and community partners at MutinyRadio.fm. Hi, I'm Chuck Weiss. If you're an old baby boomer like me, pain is probably something you've learned to live with by now. Yes, there are drugs on the market that help, but they come with side effects and shouldn't be used for extended periods of time. But fortunately, there is an effective natural pain reliever available in this state, medical cannabis. Let me tell you about Alta California Botanicals. They're a manufacturer of fine cannabis tinctures. Now you can take your medication in liquid form, much more discreet than pulling out a pipe and lighting up. Alta California Botanicals offers five different formulations, each one addressing a specific medical concern. There are two that are designed for pain, one to be swallowed, of course, and a new one for external use only. I'm going to have to try that one myself on my arthritic fingers. There's a tincture for stress and one for anxiety. They'll certainly keep you mellow. And there's even one for people who suffer from MS. The cannabis tinctures from Alpha California Botanicals come in one half ounce bottles. Each batch is laboratory tested and certified free of pesticides and mold. In other words, completely natural and unadulterated. Alpha California Botanicals doesn't sell directly to the public, of course, but if you visit their website at Alta, A-L-T-A, CaliforniaBotanicals.com and enter your zip code, they'll give you a list of dispensaries near you that keep their tinctures in stock. Now here's a tip for the holiday season. Keep a couple of extra bottles of the stress formula handy. It'll help maintain your cool amongst all that shopping madness. I'm Chuck Weiss for AltaCaliforniaBotanicals.com. Do you have a great idea for a product or service but don't know where to start? Are you looking to expand your current business? Women's Initiative of San Francisco began its business management training program for low-income, high-potential women in 1988. To attend a free orientation on how you can achieve your dream of starting your own business, or for more information, please contact 415.
Hey everybody, just a quick note before we get started with today's episode. We recorded this one before the June 17th, 2015 attack on Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. That mass shooting put the former colony of Rhodesia in the national spotlight in the United States. We mentioned Rhodesia in this episode almost as an aside. That was a coincidence and we definitely would have approached it differently if we had recorded even a couple of days later. So... If you get to our brief mention of Rhodesia and wonder why we didn't include a more thorough or detailed explanation, that's why. Our focus was really on Australia as we were preparing this episode. And a full episode related to Rhodesia will be coming in the near future. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. A lot of our listeners probably like the BBC drama called The Midwife. I know I like it very much. It is, for those who are not familiar, set in the impoverished neighborhood of Poplar in London's East End in the 1950s and 60s. And it tells the story of these nuns and midwives uh, who are basically providing health care and delivering babies. Uh, in people's homes. And it's based on the memoirs of Jennifer Worth, who was one of the midwives who did this work during this time period. So every episode of Call the Midwife tells these stories of women in their neighborhood and lots of babies and uh, and family stories. But because of when they're set, they are also peppered with horrific other happenings in the world. Um, there are stories of women who have survived workhouses and the eugenics movement. There are ones about teenage mothers who had their babies taken away from them without their consent or the chance to say goodbye. One of the most recent episodes that aired in the U.S., I was literally yelling at my television to a pregnant woman who was having extreme morning sickness, don't take that, it's thalidomide, because we know now thalidomide caused many, many children to be born without their limbs and with all kinds of other physical problems. For the most part, when like when Call the Midwife drops one of these things on the viewer, I know that story already, right? I already knew about workhouses and teenage moms who had their babies taken away and all this stuff. Uh, but there's one episode that alluded to a horror that was entirely news to me. It's the first episode of the most recent season, which is series four. It's about a family of four young children who have just been woefully neglected neglected by their mother. And the oldest one is trying to look after the siblings, but he's just a little boy. Uh, in the end, they are taken from their mother's care. The baby, who uh, was just in very horrible condition from all this neglect, was adopted by another family. Um, and then the uh, rest of the children are sent to Australia as part of the child migrant program, where, uh, according to Vanessa Redgrave's narration, they faced a life of hard labor. And then I was like, I'm, wait, I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> the what program are we talking about right now? Then I basically tweeted that I just wanted to thank Call the Midwife for telling me some horrible thing from the past that I didn't know about that now I was going to have to do a podcast episode on because that's exactly what happened. We have, before on the show, talked about a number of government attempts to populate their various colonies throughout uh, encouraged or, more accurately, forced migrations before. Uh, in the fairly recent archives, we have episodes on Les Filles du Roi, who were the women sent to New France, which is now Canada, as potential wives in the hope that they would even out the gender ratio and boost population there. And we've also talked about the Lady Juliana, which was a ship of female prisoners sent on a similar mission from Britain to Australia. 
And in the U.S., uh, there were the orphan trains, which transported children, some of which were orphans, some of which were not, from densely populated cities in the east to country out west, where they would have, it was hoped, a better life. So the Fille du Bois migrated in the late 17th century. The Lady Juliana sailed in 1789. The orphan trains ran in the United States from the 1850s until 1929, although that last train only carried three children on it. In Britain, uh, child migration efforts started as early as the 1600s, when children were sent to the American colony of Virginia. It was about 100 children. But these efforts didn't really get going until the 1800s. From then until the 1920s, about 100,000 children were sent from the British Isles to Canada to live. For the most part, these Canadian children were sent through processing centers, and then they were divided by gender. Boys went to farms to do farm work, and girls went to homes to act as domestic servants. So this phase of child migration from Britain did have some things in common with the orphan train movement that uh, we've had a whole episode on. Uh, people thought that the children were going to be better off in their new circumstances, that they were getting access to a better life than they would have had in an institution uh, in Britain, and that they were also learning to work in their new placements. But in reality, British children sent to Canada wound up doing manual labor for little to no money. Once in Canada, home children, as they came to be known, were usually stigmatized and they were treated as second-class citizens, regardless of whether they were working on a farm or in a home or somewhere else. So much so that many of them hid this part of their childhood when they became adults. It's estimated that a little more than 10% of Canada's population is actually descended from child migrants. Uh, I kept finding a statistic that more than half of these children had also been abused in some way, but I could not figure out how that statistic was determined. Uh, and some of the children who were sent to Canada did wind up back in orphanages and other institutions when uh, placements for them could not be found in homes and farms and other places. So in these cases, children had basically been sent from one institution to another institution, with the second one being on the other side of an entire ocean. So they basically lost the connections they'd had to friends and family and the people who were caring for them where they came from to have to start all over somewhere on the other side of the world. Many of the surviving British child migrants to Canada were tracked down in the 1980s. And by that point, the ones that were still alive were elderly, and the stories that they told were also very similar to what we talked about in the Orphan Trains episode. Many had been sent to Canada far too young to really know what was going on, and most were told that their parents had died. But many had siblings, cousins, and other family, all of whom were separated from one another. Child migration efforts from Britain to Canada ended with the Great Depression, but a new wave of migration followed, and this was to Australia and New Zealand. We're going to talk about that more after a brief word from a sponsor. So uh, 90% of your life probably spent in underwear for the typical person. Yeah, that seems like a safe bet. Yeah, but uh, wearing the same garments over and over again for that long, they get old pretty fast. Uh, so putting on the, you know, saggy old underwear with the blown out elastic especially is what I hate the worst. Uh, not so good on your day. Instead, you need to know about MeUndies.com. It is the most comfortable underwear you will ever wear. Just fantastically good. 
they fit really well. They don't ride up and they literally pull moisture away from your body so that you stay cool while you are wearing them. It is like my fancy running shirts, but for underwear. Uh, and you know, we've talked before about how much we love their t-shirts. Their t-shirts are great for sleeping in. They're cozy and wonderful. Uh, I love to put mine on when I'm in a loungy mood or not feeling very well. So I just feel a little bit better. So they have really great styles for both men and women and cat beds. And they all look great. You can check out photos for yourself at MeUndies.com. And with this kind of quality, normally in a retail store, you'd pay twice what you would pay for MeUndies.com. But since they are cutting out the middleman, you get big savings for yourself. Plus, if you go to MeUndies.com slash history, you'll get 20% off your first order and free shipping. You can save even more if you buy a pack. They guarantee that you're going to be happy with them or your first pair is free. So once you get MeUndies on your body, you will not be going back. To get that 20% off, though, you need to go to MeUndies.com slash history. And now we'll get back to our episode. So the Department of Health estimates that in the 19th and 20th centuries, 150,000 child migrants were sent from Britain to other countries. 100,000 of them, as we just talked about before the break, went to Canada. The rest of them went to Australia, New Zealand, and Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. In the wake of World War II, the British Empire feared for the stability of its territory in Australia and New Zealand. Having such an expansive, largely unpopulated territory so far away from Britain, and so much closer to nations with which Britain had just been at war, seemed very threatening. Plus, there were some overall population worries in general. There had been a great loss of life that had come along with the war, and then there was the fact that the white colonists in Australia were basically a minority in that hemisphere. In the words of the Archbishop of Perth in 1938, quote, if we do not supply from our own stock, we are leaving ourselves all the more exposed to the menace of the teeming millions of our neighboring Asiatic races. So uh, the British government decided to send children to Australia and New Zealand. Australia also invited other European nations to participate in this scheme and about 100 children came from Malta, but that really seems to be the extent of participation from elsewhere in Europe. About 550 British children were sent to New Zealand and placed in foster homes, although many of those placements turned out to be temporary. They just didn't work out for one reason or another. And that whole process was not really supervised very well by local authorities or child, we child welfare organizations once the children were in New Zealand. Many more children were Australia. The British and Australian governments took on this scheme with a collection of religious charities and other charitable organizations, including the Salvation Army, Bernardo's, the Fairbridge Society, and National Children's Homes. There were organizations affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England that also were involved in this plan. So, at least in some cases, there seems to have been a genuine desire to provide a better life for children who were living in poverty or were being neglected or mistreated by their families or were for some other reason living in some kind of unsafe condition. There were definitely people involved in this who were envisioning that these children would have an idyllic life on a farm with warm weather and lots of sunshine once they got to Australia. When you look at the pictures of these children as they're leaving Britain or arriving in Australia, they often look really happy, like they're about to uh, embark on this wonderful adventure. Uh, but the reality was much different. Between the 1930s and 1967, 
between 7,000 and 10,000 children between the ages of 3 and 14 were moved from Britain to Australia. And they were described in the press at the time as, quote, war orphans. And newspaper coverage praised these efforts as being charitable. But even though they had generally been told that their parents had died, most of these children were not orphans. Many of them were children whose families had fallen on hard times during the war, and they had consequently put their children into care, hoping to come back for them later when they had their, their finances under control. Many of them were children of unmarried women and other parents who had placed their children up for adoption and thought that their children had been adopted by families who were going to be better off uh, that way. For the children who still had living families, which was a lot of the children who were sent to Australia, this basically deportation was done without their parents' knowledge or consent. So at this point, we have children who were told they were orphans, but in fact they were not, and parents who were told their children were going to be placed with an adoptive family, but in fact they were not. And instead, these children, who were as young as three years old, were sent 12,000 miles away on a sea voyage that took up to 12 weeks, giving them very little hope of ever returning to Britain. To make things worse, once the children were in Australia, there were not families waiting to care for them. That whole plan was pretty much abandoned almost immediately as being too much trouble. They went back into institutions. So for a lot of children, even if they had started out at an institution in Britain, this meant being uprooted from a setting that was familiar, where they had relationship relationships with staff and other children, and being sent to the literal other side of the world, once again, to start over at a different institution with different staff and different surroundings and different peers living with them. Although some children who were relocated to Australia did well there, many wound up feeling rejected by Britain and never really at home in Australia. A couple of the institutions where these children were placed became notorious for abuse and neglect. In particular, Bindoon Boys Town, which is north of Perth, was literally built by the boys who were to live there. It was heavy manual labor, and they were children. As adults, many of the boys who lived there reported being physically and sexually abused, and this was by far not the only place where abuses were reported, but reports of abuse at Bindoon were widespread and extremely horrifying. So, apart from the news coverage that had happened as children were being sent, which was generally favorable, this whole process fell out of view for a lot of people for a long time. We're going to talk about when and how that changed after another brief word from a sponsor. Okay, so uh, I don't think it's any uh, big rarity that people are busy these days. It's not like you or I are the only busy people on the planet. And frankly, often the last thing most people want to do after they have been through a full work day is truck it to the grocery store, pick out some ingredients, schlep that home and make an actual meal out of it. And it can be really expensive and unhealthy if you give in to your um, natural urges to get takeout, which I have a lot of, but I resist them. And that's where Blue Apron can really save your day. Blue Apron is going to deliver farm fresh ingredients and step-by-step -step recipes for your home. So you're going to be able to create healthy handcrafted meals right there in your own kitchen without having to mess with trips to the grocery store or hucking around your stuff. So for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron is going to get you fresh ingredients. They are already proportioned out. All you got to do is cut your veggies and get ready to cook. Uh, it makes cooking healthy meals so easy and super fun. And you will not have wasted unused ingredients, which always makes me feel guilty and horrible. Plus, you're kind of getting a masterclass in cooking with every box because you're getting new things and new ingredients 
and stuff you might not even pick out at the grocery store for yourself. It's perfect for date night. You can cook with friends. I've said before, we like to have people over and make all of the meals in the box and kind of do it like a little appetizer party. Uh, and you can even do a family plan if you have kids at your house. And that way the whole family eats well, has fun, and learns about nutrition and cooking together. So I've been looking at the upcoming menus. Super excited about the shaved beef bow with hoisin and pickles and soba salad. Patrick loves to make soba, so I'm really excited about like a new soba variation for Patrick to be making. Yummo! Uh, I have been eyeballing the vegetarian menu because there's Szechuan-style eggplant with cashews and rice, and uh, that sounds super yummy to me. The great thing about any of these delicious-sounding meals is that each of them is only going to be about 500 to 700 calories per serving, and they're so delicious they do not taste like low-cal food. Uh, cooking takes you about a half an hour, the shipping is flexible and free, and the menus are brand new every time you're not going to make the same meal twice. And they'll work around your schedule and your dietary preferences, and you're going to be working with seasonal ingredients, super fresh. Uh, you're going to cook incredible meals, and you're really going to be blown away by what you can achieve in the kitchen without any special skills, really. It's just a better way to cook with Blue Apron. So check out this week's menu. Get your first two meals for free if you go to blueapron.com history. That is the real deal. Two free meals on us when you go to blueapron.com history. And now we'll get back into some history. So as we just alluded to before the break, uh, after all this favorable news coverage in the post-war years, this program kind of faded away from the public consciousness in the British Empire. That started to change in 1986, when a woman known as Madeline wrote a letter to a British social worker named Margaret Humphreys. Humphreys had been running a support service called Triangle, which was for birth parents, adoptive parents, and adults who had been adopted as children. So it was for all three pieces of the adoption triangle to kind of get to know each other and have a support group and that sort of a thing. Madeline was living in Adelaide and had heard about the service from a friend who had taken a trip to Britain. And Madeline's letter said that she had been taken from a children's home where she had been living because her parents had died when she was four and sent to Australia. So when Humphreys read this letter, she thought Madeline must be mistaken or misremembering that there had to be some other explanation because the idea of a four-year-old being sent from Britain to Australia without a guardian there was just frankly unbelievable. Not long after that, though, another woman at a Triangle meeting who had been adopted as a child told a story of basically remembering as an adult that she had had a brother. When she managed to track this brother down, it turned out he also had been sent to Australia. Even as she started searching for birth records and the records of Madeline's parents' deaths, Humphreys thought this must all have been some kind of misunderstanding. But after looking for birth records one day at St. Catherine's house, which is where all the birth, death, and marriage records were kept, she walked to the nearby Australian High Commission house and asked about the records of children who had been sent to Australia after World War II. And the wording of the answer that she got set off some alarm bells. Quote, the records of the children have been sent to Canberra. That made it sound like there were many. So she started to do some more investigating. She put ads in Australian newspapers asking for people who had been sent to Australia from children's homes in the 40s and 50s to write to her. And soon it became clear that there was just a vast tangle to uncover. She teamed up with Annabelle Ferriman, who traveled to Australia to do more research, Annabelle Ferriman was a journalist who was going to write articles about what they discovered. While she was in Australia, Humphreys met more people who had been sent to Australia as children, 
and once they were in Australia, they had wound up in institutions, and all of them believed that their parents had died. They had no birth certificates, they had no other ties to their home, and many of them weren't even sure of what their own birthdays were. Eventually, Humphreys worked to establish the Child Migrants Trust to help reconnect these now-grown children with their families back in Britain. This became an actual organization, and working there became her full-time job. Many of the children's records were destroyed as schools closed down or charities ceased to operate. Some of these records were falsified or even lost when the children were originally sent to Australia. And one of the difficulties that arose was that once children were reconnected with their birth parents, they had trouble traveling to Britain to meet in person. With no birth certificates or other documentation, they couldn't get passports. Uh, Humphreys really worked just, she worked herself to exhaustion repeatedly doing all this. She also got, uh, as the allegations of abuse became more public, she got death threats and multiple death threats, threats to her family. Um, like she really continued to do this work as people were, uh, showing up at her hotel rooms, trying to break in because she was speaking out against, uh, abuse that children had suffered at the hands of religious care institutions. The whole thing is pretty horrifying. Um, In addition to many, many trips to Australia, she also traveled to Canada and to Zimbabwe, which was during the time of the migrations known as Rhodesia, to meet with former child migrants in both of those places. And we haven't talked as much about child migration to Rhodesia, but based on the accounts that she heard there, Most of the child migrants that were sent to Rhodesia were sent to school and treated as a privileged class, although they still did not know who their families were. The migration to Rhodesia seems to have been orchestrated, at least in part, to make sure that there was an ongoing white upper class in British African territory. A documentary drawing from Humphrey's work came out in 1989. It was called Lost Children of the Empire. A drama followed, which was called The Leaving of Liverpool, And as each of these aired in Australia and in Great Britain, people just came out of the woodwork in both places, trying to connect with their lost children and their lost parents. Humphreys also wrote a book, which was originally called Empty Cradles. Uh, It is now retitled as Oranges in Sunshine, after the movie that was made based on it. Kevin Rudd, who was then the premier of Australia, publicly apologized for the child migration in 2009, saying, We are sorry. Sorry that as children you were taken from your families and placed in institutions where so often you were abused. Sorry for the physical suffering, the emotional starvation, and the cold absence of love, of tenderness, of care. Prime Minister Gordon Brown apologized for the program also in 2010. He said, To all those former child migrants and their families, we are truly sorry. They were let down. We are sorry they were allowed to be sent away at the time when they were most vulnerable. We are sorry that instead of caring for them, this country turned its back. And we are sorry that the voices of these children were not always heard, their cries for help not always heeded. And we are sorry that it has taken so long for this important day to come and for the full and unconditional apology that is justly deserved. Uh, That's so long, like literally 20-something years Margaret Humphreys had been trying to get someone to acknowledge what was going on before the official apology came. And in that same statement, Brown announced a six million pound fund, which has kept the Child Migrants Trust working 
to connect children with their families. Humphreys and the Child Migrants Trust continue to do this work today. She was actually named to the Order of Australia. She was the first British citizen outside of the royal family to be so named. She was later named commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Thanks, Call the Midwife, for making <laughs> us have to talk about this. <laughs> I do love that show, but especially with Christmas episodes, there's always just this, like, some kind of social or historical horror that stabs you in your heart part while you're watching. See, I'm safe because I'm I'm phobic about all babies and childbirth things. <laughs> I don't watch Call the Midwife. Um, <laughs> so I'm safe from these cruel, cruel episodes. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you have a spot of listener mail for us? I do have a spot of listener mail. Uh, and it is about time capsules. It's from John. John says, first off, love the podcast. Now let's talk about time capsules. Time capsules are actually the reason why I started listening to your podcast. Well, an art project that deals with time capsules, about 610 of them. I currently work in the archives at the Andy Warhol Museum as an imaging technician. Starting in 1974 and until 1987, Andy Warhol filled containers, mainly cardboard boxes, with different items from his life. He had a few possible plans for them. One was to turn all the items into an art show someday, and another was to sell each box off as a piece of art. But unfortunately, he unexpectedly died before any of that could happen. They consisted of newspapers, photographs, artwork, letters, invitations, uncashed checks, an inflated birthday cake, a picture of Rob Lowe wrapped only in a stuffed animal snake, probably the best thing ever, Jean-Michel Basquiat's birth certificate, and countless other items, including stuff from when he was a child growing up in Pittsburgh until his death in 1987. These boxes contain more than 300,000 items. The museum has been working to archive and catalog everything that are in these time capsules, there's a great This American Life about the project. My job at work, my job is to work at trying to digitize this entire collection of items. It's a pr- 